And this is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Is this the week, the week when the president's much-debated infrastructure plan gets the nod from Congress? The week the president's scaled-down, build-back-better safety net plan gets Democrats fully on board? The week Senator Joe Manchin finally says, hell yes, instead of hell no, we'll go in-depth. The president wrapped up the U.N. climate summit in Scotland with an agreement to cut down methane emissions. Will it work or is it just hot air? And remember the infamous jetpack man buzzing airliners near LAX? You may never guess what jetpack man probably was. CDC meets today to give what would be the final sign-off on the Pfizer COVID vaccine for the young kids. Same time, Moderna's COVID vaccine for kids put on hold. A concerning side effect. Facebook doing away with its facial recognition system, something a lot of users found creepy, and will give you a practical guide for navigating what is almost guaranteed to be a messy holiday travel season. But we start with trillions of dollars worth of domestic policy goals for President Biden all hanging in limbo and apparently all hanging on basically one senator. Pete Aguilar is a Democratic congressman from San Bernardino. He's vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus and a member of the House Appropriations Committee. Congressman, thanks for being with us. So the uh, president in uh, uh, Scotland just before said that uh, he's pretty confident that when push comes to shove, uh, Senator Joe Manchin is going to be on board and, and vote with the rest of the the Democrats in the Senate, uh, although from various reports, the senator doesn't seem to be expressing the same degree of optimism. What say you? Well, I can't always be a, a Senate whisperer uh, or speak for uh, Senator Manchin or, or the folks on the other side of the dome. But what I can speak to is the importance of passing these pieces of legislation. And nothing I heard the senator say uh, indicates that he was a no voter. He was close to this. And I know he's had a number of conversations with my House colleagues um, talking about uh, the importance of provisions within these bills. And so, you know, our hope and our goal is that we continue to advance uh, this groundbreaking piece of legislation that will make a difference in the lives of so many Southern Californians. He was talking yesterday, he being Joe Manchin, though, and saying that there's a lot of gimmicks in here, that it's not really 1.75, which is the number he wants, but actually you're just trying to fund things for a little bit of time and then bake it in and it'll get extended later and we'll always have these programs. And that price tag is like the price tag that we were originally fighting over to begin with. Well, yeah, no, I, I heard what he said. I would also submit that some of the um, uh, transportation um, measures that he indicated and he was comfortable with and voted for uh, to pay for the transportation infrastructure um, a bill, uh, some of those things were not germane or were not, you know, within the realm of, of transportation. Um, so, so I think that when it comes to how you fund these important priorities, um, you know, we have to we have to get creative. And the president has said that we will not individuals making less than four hundred thousand dollars will not pay another dime in taxes. And so the benefits from Build Back Better, expanded child care, child tax credits, uh, all of those benefits for Southern California families, in addition to the transportation uh, and infrastructure benefits in public transit and passenger rail and bridge and road investments, uh, 
all of those could be done and we will be earth shattering and we will get them done and will not raise the taxes of everyday Southern California. Okay, but, but, but taking it away now from Congress and, and more toward what the average person, the average American is going to, to take away from this, provided that this all goes through uh, both houses of Congress. You know, as you know, there's an, an awful lot of, of disappointment out there. Uh, people who were expecting uh, a much bigger expansion, for example, of Medicare to include, you know, a vision, to include dental. It doesn't include it now. People who are hoping that there would be a, a larger tax burden on wealthy people in terms of, of money that they collect throughout life because of investments. That's not in there now. Uh, how do you address the disappointment that some people feel? This is the most, and what I would tell those individuals and as they call my office and as we have conversations, you know, out in San Bernardino with, with folks, I would tell them that this is the most transformative investment in children, in caregiving, uh, the, the largest effort to combat climate change in American history, the largest expansion of the affordable health care coverage in a decade. These are things that are contained within this bill. I would love the stars and the moon, and I would love to help everybody we can. We have we have restrictions uh, that uh, that uh, prevent us from doing all of our hopes and dreams, and that's and that's fine. And that's the democratic process of counting the 218 votes in the House and and getting the vote margins we need in a very divided Senate, evenly divided Senate, I should say. So the what I would stand on are the policy benefits that we seek to achieve in in children and childcare, uh, the largest uh, creation of of jobs. Um, the child tax credit that would go to hundreds of thousands of, of Southern California families. Those are the things that I feel comfortable standing on and telling uh, residents uh, out in San Bernardino County why I support this bill. Pete Aguilar, Democratic Congressman from San Bernardino. First, Facebook says they're tossing out its brand name. Now, Facebook says out goes its facial recognition system. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is KNX In-Depth. Here's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, some practical guidance for navigating open enrollment season, picking the health insurance option that's right for you. Before that, the goals, the commitments to blunt climate change coming out of the summit in Scotland. They sound good, but will they actually happen? Right now, uh, Facebook's facial recognition system would recognize someone's face in the photos and videos on your feed, and in many cases, would automatically tag that person. Well, it creeped out a lot of Facebook users, and it raised all kinds of privacy concerns. So today, it's going bye-bye, it's gone, away. Sharon Bradford Franklin, co-director of the Security and Surveillance Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Thanks for being with us, uh, Sharon. So what brought this about? Why, after all these uh, years, is Facebook jettisoning something that it obviously thought was advantageous to its business model, but people didn't like? Well, I can't speak to why Facebook made this announcement right now, um, but it certainly is very um, encouraging to see that they are recognizing the severe uh, privacy threats, and they've also cited just the complete lack of any kind of regulations governing the use of this very dangerous technology. Are they just shutting down the feature so you can't opt into it anymore and saying, oh, maybe somebody will try this again? Or are they actually deleting everybody's you know, data about their face so it's not stored there anymore? 
Yeah, so my understanding from their announcement is they are deleting uh, a billion face prints. So the, uh, the uh, image that they create that helps them to identify uh, people. So that is more than just shutting down the system. So what was the primary concern that those who were opposed to this had? What was the, the main objection? So there are a lot of concerns. Facebook only cites in its announcement privacy and lack of regulation, but there's also a lot of concerns about how facial recognition technology um, infringes on civil rights and civil liberties. So we know that the tech from uh, research that the technology is inherently biased. It has been documented to be far less accurate uh, for uh, people of color and for women. Uh, also some of the data sets on which uh, it is trained, uh, depending if you're looking the law enforcement use, for example, the databases of arrest records uh, reflect bias inherent in our criminal justice system, where we have disproportionate numbers of arrests of Black people. And uh, facial recognition can uh, chill our exercise of First Amendment activities, how we go about uh, exercising free speech rights and uh, protests or, or patterns of association. You mentioned there's not a lot of regulation for this, which is one thing that they cited. If there was, do you think it would be easier to, to pull something like this off if there were clear rules about when you could use it, what you could use it for? Because it kind of does seem like a someday thing. I mean, the airlines are moving towards this. It's being talked about in other situations. And Facebook and whatever they rename themselves and all these other products they're going to have, they're going to end up using this in some other capacity. I don't think this is an end to the use of facial recognition technology. Um, we do have a lack though of rules, both governing private use um, and we have a complete lack of comprehensive consumer privacy legislation in general in the United States. And also very concerning is the lack of any rules or structure to govern use by government such as law enforcement use, which uh, raises a whole host of additional threats. Okay, so Facebook gets maybe some some kudos for getting rid of the uh, facial recognition system, but how many other countless ways does Facebook and other social media, to be fair, uh, invade people's privacy that is not going away? Well, as I mentioned, we really do need comprehensive consumer privacy legislation to govern how all sorts of companies um, collect our data, how they can use it. Uh, my, my colleagues at CDT uh, focus on other use of algorithms in ways that uh, may uh, not address disinformation and misinformation, but instead exacerbate those problems in terms of what uh, content is surfaced. So yes, there are a, a host of other concerns that we need to address. Sharon Bradford Franklin, co-director of the Security and Surveillance Project, the Center for Democracy and Technology. Look up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is it Jetpack Man? Turns out, none of the above. What's that? <laughs> Flying around. You're listening to KNX in the depth along with Charles Feldman and Mike Simpson. Uh, you got a grandma you want to visit because you didn't last year because of COVID and you're planning to go, you know, this year for Thanksgiving maybe. Well, the airlines, as we all know, they have been a mess. We will try to help you navigate around some of that uh, a little bit later in the show. Right now, though, Jetpack Man, we know about him. He captured all of our imaginations because pilots kept saying a few times, there's yes. a guy in a jetpack flying past my plane. Uh -huh. He's over by LAX. Uh, LAPD <laughs> helicopters saw it. Uh, turns out 
it maybe was a life-size balloon of Jack Skellington from uh, Tim Burton's <laughs> right there before Christmas. I love it. I love yeah. that story. So that's, you know, you read that and you, it was a what? Um, so that's one of the theories that's being investigated. Laura Einsettler, aviation analyst, active commercial airline pilot. Uh, Captain Laura, thanks for being back with us. So you're flying around, let's say, and you see uh, a man thing flying next to you. Can you tell Jetpack Man versus Balloon, do you think? Well, hello, Charles and Mike and all the listeners. I'm uh, glad to be back with you. It's uh, We don't like to see things that we are not recognizing, obviously, in the sky because safety being our number one priority. So when you see something that looks like a person <laughs> hovering <laughs> along in the air, that's uh, very concerning, whether right. it's a yes. or... Jack yeah, you don't want to see mm-hmm. like a person outside there <laughs> when you're at like no. <laughs> 20,000 feet. But but doesn't it also kind of go to the issue about the fallibility really of so-called eyewitness accounts? You know, uh, we were talking in the office before, uh, like UFOs, for example, and often uh, people will say, well, but they were seen by airline pilots and they're expert witnesses. But even airline pilots can see things that perhaps aren't really there. Well, let's put it this way. So airline pilots, we have to have excellent vision, of course, uh, to be flying the big jets that we do. And also we're people of our word (laughs) or we won't be flying those (laughs) aircraft. And so normally if we're actually going to speak out, we're pretty sure that what we're seeing is something that we can actually label. (laughs) So especially when you have different accounts from different uh, flight decks, and there's uh, different airplanes in different positions, and we're all saying, hey, we're seeing this thing, you can pretty much rest assured it's probably pretty valid. So what do you think happened with our our jetpack man slash maybe balloon <laughs> here? I mean, when you sit and read these articles or hear mm-hmm. about it, what's going through your head? Three different times, and maybe it was one guy in a jetpack and two balloons. Who knows? Yeah, never well, know. that's... Uh, Exactly. I mean, understanding that the, the way the jet packs work, there are some manufacturers that do make these type of jet packs that can actually launch someone up to as high as 5,000 feet. So when we're on an approach uh, and we're supposed to be 100% focused on our uh, approach and landing into a major airport, and you see something like that, like I said, whether it's the jet pack or Jack Skellington, depending on how close it is, you know, it's still a risk to ourselves, our passengers, you know, the aircraft, things like that. So if somebody is launching Jack up there and that's what we we keep seeing in the sky, uh, they need to be aware that, you know, something along those lines can actually take out one of our engines and possibly even take down a small aircraft. Yeah, I was going to ask you, if you're in, a, in, in one of the bigger planes, not a, not a small uh, a private plane, but a commercial airliner, uh, how much damage could, if it is a balloon, would a balloon of that size, the size of a, of a human, cause? Well, those engines are made so so strongly, and of course, they, they test them to the nth degree. Uh, but, you know, it depends. If it has metal components to it, the balloon, and it goes through our engine, it could completely take out the engine. So it's good that, of course, we have two engines. But in the case of a smaller, you know, maybe a more of a corporate airplane or a smaller, something like a Cessna or, you know, sport aircraft, you know, something along those lines, that's a single engine. Uh, even if it doesn't have the metal components, the fact that it would be that large of a balloon might cover our windscreen in in another scenario so that would cause a real issue 
Yeah, we don't want you distracted up there. Uh, Lauren Einsettler, aviation analyst, active commercial airline pilot. I am just looking on Amazon right now, and which you should not launch it for your house into the air. Keep it at your home. But there yeah. is a, an 84-inch Jack Skellington uh, foil balloon multicolor for $18. Only one left in stock, so word Only has gotten one? out that these exist. Yeah, but you can have it by... By uh, Sunday, it looks like, if you want it. I think if we check back in 10 minutes, it'll be gone. Uh, Who doesn't want to save the world's forests, right? And and, uh, there are all kinds of promises coming out of that Glasgow summit that we will talk about. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Leaders in more than 100 countries signing on to a pledge end deforestation by 2030 at the latest, also committed to cutting down on emissions of the dangerous greenhouse gas methane, pledged billions of dollars to support environmentally friendly policies in developing countries. All this coming out of the climate summit in Glasgow, Scotland. It sounds great, but uh, is it actually going to happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you remember, there were lots of promises made in the Paris Accords back in 2015. And... Well, countries missed most of them. Rachel Cletus is policy director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks for being with us. I mean, right off the bat, uh, President Biden at a concluding news conference just a little while ago in Scotland, you know, was disappointed. He said that that neither China nor Russia were there and, and they play a big part, obviously, in environmental issues. So how much could we really bet on any of this stuff coming to pass. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you know, the reality is that global leaders are still falling far short of what's necessary, what the science is showing is necessary in terms of cutting our emissions. And meanwhile, we're continuing to see devastating, costly climate impacts all around the world, including right here in the U.S., catastrophic wildfires and floods and drought, heat waves. So the urgency couldn't be clearer, and we're still falling short. Every major emitter, all richer countries need to do more. Does that sort of, though, in a twisted or roundabout way, give you some hope that now that we, more of us, are actually experiencing the problems that will come with this, that that's going to add to the urgency? Or, you know, we can be yelling about it all day, but are the people in charge going to do anything? This has always been about making sure that our political leaders are delivering for what people need and what people want, and they're not being held hostage to the narrow self-interest of a few, the powerful, the elite, the fossil fuel industry, etc. And I think the reality is wherever you live in the world right now, wherever you live in our country here in the U.S., a red state or a blue state, you've seen the impacts of climate change in your backyard. So this is a time to hold our policymakers accountable, hold their feet to the fire. Congress has a very important moment right now. They could pass the Build Back Better Act. It contains very important climate provisions. Delivering on those provisions is crucial for our country. It's also crucial for our global emissions reduction pledge. Our words need to matter. We can only deliver on that pledge if we deliver concrete policies here at home. Yeah, but, is, but, it, but the problem is which words will matter the most. I mean, uh, President Biden has been criticized the past few days for, in effect, saying two different things out of two different sides of his mouth. On the one hand, encouraging all of these environmental uh, initiatives to try to uh, at least mitigate global warm, uh, warming. On the other hand, encouraging 
uh, you know, the production of oil and natural gas because, as he, I think he put it, in practical terms, people still need to be able to get gas for their cars and heat their homes in the winter. So which words are we supposed to take to the bank? Look, we need an all-hands-on-deck approach here. So today, for example, hearing these pledges around cutting methane emissions, hearing the commitment to slow deforestation, these are all necessary and important. But to the point that you just made, we're being presented with a false choice here that somehow getting off a fossil fuel-based economy is going to hurt people. What's been hurting people for decades now is our over-reliance on fossil fuels. It has created a lot of pollution in communities around the country. And now we have this even bigger reason to get off it, which is climate change. How we make that transition is crucial. We can't leave people behind. We can't leave folks on the hook for paying the costs of this transition. That's why Congress needs to invest. We need to invest in clean energy. We need to invest in supports for fossil fuel workers and communities so that they're not harmed by this transition. That's what we failed to do. If we make those investments, there is no reason for people to suffer in this transition. The fossil fuel industry would love you to believe that there's a false choice. You can either heat your home or uh, go without. The reality is you can heat your home with clean energy. And the reason you don't have that choice right now is because they have blocked it. Well, then where are all of the people looking to make money on that? Where's my climate change billionaires instead of my fossil fuel billionaires? Because if you can make money doing something, well, then uh, people are going to try and give it a shot. There is a lot of money to be made in clean energy. It is now in most places in the world, the cheapest form of energy to install. We've seen a record growth in renewable energy around the world, but we have to accelerate that momentum because the climate timetable is so dire and so short. And that's what making investments can do. If we make the right investments now, we can accelerate the momentum that's already underway. And that's why uh, Congress should secure, for example, the clean energy tax credits that are in the Build Back Better Act. That will make a huge difference. It will make it possible for many, many more places and many more communities to take advantage of clean energy, electric vehicles, a cleaner industrial uh, system, and basically get us off fossil fuels a lot quicker than would have happened otherwise. Rachel Cletus, Policy Director, the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Well, the CDC is expected to give a final sign-off on the Pfizer COVID vaccine for the 5 to 11-year-old set later today. This, while Moderna's vaccine option for children, is running into some problems. When we come back, we will explain. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, millions of child-sized doses of Pfizer's COVID vaccine, along with millions of little, smaller needles, are at the ready in health clinics and pediatricians' offices all across the country. CDC's Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting as we speak to give what would be the final sign-off on the use of Pfizer's vaccine for kids between the ages of 5 and 11. Remember when we asked the doctor if they still give lollipops? And they said yeah. no, because the dentist's 
yell at us. Yeah, I still think lollipops. <laughs> stickers now. <laughs> lollipops are the way to go, sorry. Anyways, while the Pfizer vaccine is about to get the wider distribution, uh, Moderna's is on holds for now for the younger set. Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. Uh, doctor, thanks for being back with us. So let's start with the Pfizer, and then we'll move on to Moderna. But for the Pfizer, you have a long list of parents um, waiting to get these shots for their kids? Yeah, there are many parents that are eagerly awaiting the vaccine, especially with children returning to in-person learning at school. They're concerned that their kids are at higher risk of infection and that they may bring it home and infect other family members. Now, you know, parents, uh, of course, are concerned about side effects and they hear about all kinds of side effects that adults have and that kids may have. How can you address that? Yeah, so most of the side effects that occur in children occur less in the 5 to 11-year-olds compared to the older children and adults. These include things like fever, fatigue, um, and injection site pain. So they seem to tolerate it better, and possibly that's because it's one-third the dose for older children and adults. And are we sure there has been enough testing to know that something won't be different in the kids rather than adults, uh, that something won't go wrong? Because, you know, they're still growing, they're still changing. Yeah, and so that's why the FDA requires these larger studies before they even approve use in children. So that's why they required uh, the study that for the safety data cohort had more than 3,000 children, and they approved the use in children last week. So let's now shift from Pfizer's vaccine for kids to Moderna. And as we mentioned in the setup, uh, that's a little bit on hold because of uh, some more questions about the Moderna vaccine with, with children. Why is that? Yeah, so the Moderna vaccine is um, slightly different. So they're using a half dose um, of the adult dose dosage. And they did a study in six to 11 year old children, more than 4,700 children. The antibody responses were excellent, 50% higher compared to 18 to 26 year olds. Um, but they still wanted the FDA still wanted further safety data. And that's because of the extremely rare event that may occur in children, which is myocarditis. And it appears to be slightly more common with the Moderna vaccine compared to Pfizer. This is a really rare event. It's so rare that it's hard to get data, even even if you study thousands of children. And you're also more likely to get it from straight COVID than the COVID vaccine. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So from the vaccine, the the CDC, the estimates are a little bit wide, but they estimate somewhere between two and 70 myocarditis cases may occur out of every million doses of vaccine in this age group. And compare that with COVID infection, the rates are about 100 times higher between 200 and 800 cases per million cases of COVID. And then for Miss C, the multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, it's a thousand times higher risk of, of myocarditis if you get Miss C. So have you found from your experience that, that parents are more concerned about the COVID shot than other shots that kids routinely get? Or are they now starting to express skepticism about all vaccinations across the board because of their skepticism when it comes to the COVID shots? Yeah, I, I think the vaccine hesitancy was already in place before the COVID vaccines were available for children. Um, you know, vaccine hesitancy has been increasing over the past um, several years, and much of this is driven by conspiracy theories on social media. And social media really just allows these conspiracy theories to flourish, and some of them have no scientific merit whatsoever, and some just have the thinnest of scientific connection just to make them sound credible.
we mentioned it's the tinier dose. Uh, is it still a couple doses? You know, the the two course, and then maybe do we expect that someday the kids also need boosters? Yeah, maybe it's still two doses. So for the Pfizer, it's two doses of the one third of the adult dose, twenty one days apart, same as it is for older children and adults. And we just don't have the data yet um, to know whether the children will need boosters. I would anticipate that similar to older children and adults, that immunity will wear off over time. Um, you know, right now, though, what we're seeing for most people is when the immunity wears off, it results in mild breakthrough infections that don't require hospitalization, um, whereas the immunity for severe disease that requires hospitalization persists for those less than 65 years of age. So uh, Mike and I want to know where you stand on the lollipop controversy, because we are in the lollipop camp when it comes to five to 11 year olds. The lollipop guild? Yes, dentists be damned. But what do you think? No way. I'm staying on the side of my dentist for sure. Ah, it's, it's stickers oh. and, and Band-Aids, too. They get to choose their, their branded Band-Aids. Because he's got an office, you know, right down the way. You can see him. And then, oh, there's Dr. Blumberg over there. I'm going to get him in trouble. Um, finally, before we let you go, I mean, how important, just because we know uh, how kids can be in carrying things around, is getting the younger set vaccinated and not waiting. Uh, because if we're ever going to get to high levels of immunity, we need them because they're coughing and sneezing on everything. The most important reason for children to get vaccinated is for their own personal health. For 5 to 11-year-olds in the U.S., there's been one, more than 1.9 million cases, more than 8,000 hospitalizations, and 94 deaths. So over the past year, COVID is tied for the eighth leading cause of death in this age group. So they need to be vaccinated to protect themselves. And then secondarily, it'll protect other members of the community also. Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist, UC Davis Health. So he likes stickers for kids yeah. as opposed to lollipops. It's hard to find a pro lollipop doctor these days because uh, the dentists have them scared. I know. It's a campaign. <laughs> it's called No Cavities, Charles. Yeah. Well. All right. The more in-depth is on the way. Another half an hour coming up. We're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Yesterday marked the first day of the 2022 open enrollment period for health insurance coverage, including, of course, Medicare. And a survey from MedicareGuide.com reveals that one in four Americans age 65 or older have less than $500 in savings, this to use for unexpected medical bills. Now, many would turn to credit cards, while others would dip into their retirement fund. So to help you navigate the decision-making process while saving the most, we're talking with Elaine Wong Eakin, Medicare Benefit Specialist, Independent Licensed Agent. Elaine, thanks for being with us. So this whole open enrollment thing, the idea, right, is to shop around and find the best plan to save you some money. So then you're prepared for some of these expenses that you'll probably end up going through. But let's say I try and there's like 25 options, varying premiums and benefits. Do I just get overwhelmed and, and give up? Yeah, you know, most people do. First, thanks for having me on. And um, I just want to make a distinction. Um, the Medicare open enrollment started October 15. What started yesterday is for the marketplace or in California, it's covered California. So those are two different periods for two different types of plans. Um, and, you know, what you were just asking about, 
I know savings and so many options. Um, I really, really encourage people to work with a local agent, someone who takes time to get to know your needs and someone who is knowledgeable about plans in your area. So this Medicare open enrollment is technically called the annual election period. And it's for people to change Medicare Advantage plans, also called Medicare Part C and Medicare Part D plans. And uh, Part D plans are available statewide, but Medicare Advantage plans are specific to your county. Um, so again, find an, a local agent who can work with you one-on-one -on -one to know your needs, and those needs include your financial needs. So, so for people who, who are confused, and probably many are, uh, Medicare Advantage plans are essentially private policies, right, that you, you would buy uh, in, in kind of substitution for Medicare because it becomes a private coverage which covers things that Medicare doesn't necessarily coverage, but there are downsides to that, right? Yeah, so all you said, it, it's correct. They, Medicare Advantage is also Medicare Part C. So it is part of the Medicare program and it bundles in Medicare Part A, which is hospital institutional benefits, Part B, which is outpatient medical services. And many um, Medicare Advantage plans also include prescription drugs. So your Part D benefits are also included. Okay, so that's different from another type of product called Medicare Supplement, also called Medigap. So that's totally different. And this open enrollment is not for changing Medicare uh, Supplement or Medigaps. Is it going to cost me a lot of money to find someone to help me figure out how to save the money? That's a great question. Licensed agents are not allowed to charge you for their services. So uh, you pay the plan for premiums, cost sharing, uh, whatever the, the plans cost. So the agent is paid by the carrier uh, in, in commissions. So you don't pay a licensed agent for their services. Okay, but, that, but, but, but when it comes to, to Medicare Advantage plans, which as we mentioned are, are really sort of private uh, plans, uh, there's always the potential, I'm not saying that, that all agents would do this, but it might be a natural inclination to steer people toward the plans that they represent as, as agents. Is there an unbiased person at the state level where you or county level that you can go to who doesn't have a, you know, a, a, a sort of a dog in the shell? Well, there are, you know, agents who work for carriers, who are employees of, empl of carriers, but, and then there are agents who are brokers. They represent different carriers. So, you know, maybe a bit more unbiased um, that way. Elaine, so, um, huh? yeah, so you, you can find, you know, as an agent, if they represent um, more than one carrier, all right. Elaine Wong Eakin there, Medicare Benefits Specialist, Independent Licensed Agent. Elaine, thanks for talking to us. Uh, some news. The advisory panel for the uh, CDC says, yes, we're recommending the vaccine for the kids 5 to 11. So then the final ruling, we know how this works. The director has to sign off. Right. That could be within a couple hours. Right. And so in all probability, uh, if you have a 5 to 11 year old, depending on what neighborhood you live in, if they're stocked up on the kitty version of, very of soon, Pfizer, yeah. you can probably get that jab uh, as early as uh, tomorrow. But, of course, it'll be finalized, as Mike just said, once the head of the CDC says, okay. Now, if you are brave enough, 
got to be really brave to consider traveling over the holidays. We are going to come back and try to give you some useful advice on how to navigate without pulling your hair out. Listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. And repeating what we just told you a few minutes ago, the CDC giving the green light now for those Pfizer COVID vaccines for the 5 to 11-year-old set. Official uh, uh, approval probably come from the director later tonight, so shots could be available as early tomorrow. The CDC did not weigh in on lollipops for kids. We are very disappointed <laughs> about that. Our favorite debate. Yeah. Uh, the airline industry stumbled badly out of the gates on the road back to normalcy. Uh, you've heard the stories of the miserable weekends for airlines and travelers. Thousands of flights canceled, delayed, staffing shortages, air traffic control problems, weather, technical glitches, all of it. And the indications are that uh, it could be a bumpy ride for the holidays. So if you are a brave enough soul to consider flying the friendly skies at some point between Thanksgiving and the New Year, is there anything you can do to ensure that you'll have a relatively stress-free experience? Brett Snyder author of the Cranky Flyer blog, director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service. Brett, uh, so there's the question. Uh, we know, we're told it's going to be a horrible, terrible, miserable, disgusting, just awful experience. What can we do? Well, I, I mean, I think you should just get a private jet, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you. Yeah. No, I, I look, it's probably not going to be that bad. But if everyone goes into it with that, then they can only be pre pleasantly surprised. So that's that's good. Good news. point. Uh, that's a very good point. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Think no, of the worst. If you make your flight, hey, it wasn't so yeah, bad. Expect it yeah, to be right. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but it has there have been a lot of problems, especially this month. We've seen three different airlines have have big issues. Um, the airlines know that holiday travel, especially now when business travel still hasn't really returned, uh, th this is kind of the Super Bowl of the uh, travel season here. And so they need to make sure they do this right. And I think if everything goes well, then there really shouldn't be big problems. But you never know when that snowstorm is going to hit. I mean, not us, but, you know, the East Coast or something. Um and uh, any of those types of things can throw a, a big wrench into plans. And so there's always that possibility uh, that, that there could be delays and cancellations like we've seen this month. Can you imagine the chaos if a snowstorm hit LAX? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Surprise! So, yeah, right. Happy uh, holidays. So what can we do in terms of like best practices if we're trying to make it somewhere? Uh, yeah. I guess the obvious is what? Look for something direct, limit your stops. Uh, what else? Yeah. So no question. I mean, being in the LA area, we're fairly blessed to have a lot of different airlines that fly nonstop to a lot of different places. And so, uh, you know, you may, you may be tempted to, to avoid LAX and fly out of Burbank, but you might be able to get a nonstop flight out of LAX. So you might want to think twice about that this time. Uh, it's, it's always better to have a nonstop if you can. And if you're going somewhere, on an airline that has multiple nonstops, that gives options if a flight has to cancel. Uh, there are at least more in the market. So that's always a good thing to have. But, it, 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 go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, is it is it relatively easy for people to know which airlines have a better track record in terms of on-time on departures, cancellation of flights, that sort of thing? 
Well, you can look those things up. The The government puts out their air travel consumer report. The DOT puts that out. But that's really more backward looking. And the issue is often going to be very dependent upon where is the disruption. So, you know, this past week, uh, American had its struggles. Uh, that was initially caused, uh, not, it, this wasn't the whole reason for it, but it was initially caused because of really high winds in Dallas-Fort Worth, where it has its huge hub. Uh, if the next one happens to be in Atlanta, well, then Delta is going to be the one that's that's struggling. So you never really know for sure, but you can look up at how airlines have done historically uh, at the uh, DOT website there for the Air Travel Consumer Report. You just Google that, it'll come up. Let's say I'm at the airports and I get the text or I hear the announcement that my flight is canceled. That one's not going. What do I do? Do I get on the app and try and rebook? Do I start tweeting angry messages? Do I pick up the phone and call rather than wait in the line of 200 people? Yeah, the, well, the angry messages are probably not going to help you, but it might make you feel better. So you could do that. But what I would say is do all of these things. It can never hurt. So if you're at the airport already when this happens, get in line. Uh, if you're with multiple people, maybe have someone walk around and see if they can find an agent standing around that's, that's not busy and they can help there. Uh, while you're in line, get on the phone with reservations. You can, uh, you can also, with some airlines, they've started doing some pretty interesting things. You can text United. Uh, you can even, uh, United actually has a program now where they have virtual customer service agents that they kind of press into service. If, if there's one airport that's really having trouble, they can bring people in from other areas to help virtually. Uh, so the airlines are trying to, to come up with ways to do it, but the best bet is, is always trying to take advantage of all the options, not just standing in one line or sitting on hold on one phone and hoping that that's going to solve the problem alone. Does that age old strategy of uh, traveling you know, like Christmas, for example, waiting until Christmas Day and then getting a flight, does that actually work? It, you mean to travel on the off peak days? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, it's not the same as it used to be with that. You find a lot of people willing to travel uh, on almost every day now. And, and what the airlines will do is if there is lower demand on Christmas Day, for example, they'll just pull their schedules down that day. So you'll just have fewer options available anyway. So it's not that same kind of thing where you'll fly on Christmas Day and have a nice empty row to yourself. And if something goes wrong, there's always going to be more, more flights later with room. Uh, you'll just find fewer options that day, and the options that do exist will still be full. So that's that's always a You know, we know. Met, we mentioned, of course, that your blog is called Cranky Flyer, but in light of all the stuff that's been going on, are you crankier? Well, honestly, yeah. I mean, because our air travel business, we're, we're dealing with this stuff every day, and it's been exhausting. <laughs> um, and we don't even have to sit in, in you know the airports with this mess, but we're trying to help all these people. Uh, it's been really challenging and it certainly hurts people's, uh, you know, just their view of, is this trip going to be okay? Is it going to be smooth? And at a time when, you know, people are slowly coming back out of the woodwork and, and trying to get on planes, resume their lives, this kind of thing does make people think twice about some maybe more discretionary trips. But when it comes to the holidays, people want to be with their family, especially after not being able to do it last year. So, I think it's going to be a busy one, and, and hopefully everything will go okay. From the cranky flyer blog to the crankier flyer yeah. blog. <laughs> the very cranky yeah. one. <laughs> Brett Snyder, thanks. That's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow, 1 p.m.